welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You'll see in, in the series this morning, new graphic on the screen. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, or you'll see that in a minute at least. Um, Hebrews chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll be. It's going to take us a minute to get there uh, this morning uh, because we want to do uh, a little historical background. We're starting a brand new series going through um, the five solas. I'll explain more of that in a minute uh, and what that means and how that fits into what uh, we'll be talking about over the next five weeks. Uh, let me begin with asking you this, or saying this at least, that I'm, I'm fairly certain that I don't have to convince you of, of this truth. Uh, that, that we take things for granted. Would you agree with that? That we take things for granted. I don't have to convince you of that. I don't have to give many illustrations to convince you of that. And I'm fairly certain I don't have to convince you of this truth as well. Um, some of you older folks will appreciate this more than the younger folks, that subsequent generations uh, take things for granted with which uh, older generations once dreamed. Oh, which older generations once fought for What gave their lives for, people like my generation and younger tend to take for granted. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, you would likely agree with that. And and you know what I mean. Let's let's take an easy example. Here's an easy example I thought of. Air conditioning, right? Air conditioning. How many of you once lived in a house without air conditioning? I mean, look at that. That's amazing. That's over half our people almost have once lived in a house without air conditioning. How many of you today would buy a house that did not have air conditioning? One person, zero people, maybe. (laughs) When it's blowing cold, we take it for granted. And when we lose it, we finally appreciate it. And now that we have it, we can't live without it. And the farther we get from something, the harder it is to appreciate. We don't appreciate how all that thing came to be. We just know that it blows cold. And if this thing stops blowing, I hope this really doesn't happen this morning, you're going to get uncomfortable and want to leave early because it's going to get warm in here and humid in here. And we have conditioned ourselves and now we have taken that for granted. I've used this example before. Even in small businesses, statistics show us that once small businesses get to a third generation, they have a real hard time surviving. Because the generation that started it and that fought for that company to start it, the second generation still sees that vision because they lived with the founder. And the third generation is removed from that vision and they tend to go sideways if they're not careful. And so my point is this, the farther we get away from something, the creation of something, or when something entered in our society or whatever it might be, something as silly as air condition. We tend to lose excitement about it. We tend to take it for granted. And I I wonder if that is a bit of us regarding our accessibility to the Word of God. Our Bibles. We forget how blessed we are that under every seat this morning is an English translation of the Word of God that you can pick up and read and understand in your own vernacular. We take that for granted. Many of us have many Bibles. I have many Bibles in my house that I probably haven't touched that I just want to save for later. And you probably can relate to that as well. We take for granted the treasure that past generations gave their life to uncover. And as generations have passed, we take it for granted how precious the Word of God is. And that's what we'll be considering this morning under 
the sermon title called Sola Scriptura. And you say, what in the world is that? Is that just some kind of Latin flex that you're throwing out in there? No, that's not, that, that's not what's going on here. What we're going to talk about over the next five weeks are the five solas. And that's what you'll see on the screen. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and God's glory alone. The five solas are foundational convictions that have been used to define reformational truths. Truths that were rediscovered during the Protestant Reformation. And we talk about it in October sometimes because that's when the Reformation really found its spark. More of that in a minute. We're going to do a little historical dive this morning. Uh, These solas aren't being added to the scripture, but they serve as a good and faithful summary of the foundational convictions that we find in scripture. These are five truths that we would affirm to this day. The five solas aren't a concept that would be specifically known to those leaders during the Reformation and maybe have never been heard by you, but these five solas were certainly a part of what they fought to rediscover, to uncover, and to preserve. In other words, if you were to distill the Reformation down into a few thoughts, the five solas would be a very good summary. So what is the Reformation? Have you ever heard of the Reformation before? Some of us maybe have never heard of the Reformation before. The Reformation was seeking to reform the church. The church had gotten sideways doctrinally and morally. It was seeking to reform the church, believing that the doctrinal and moral corruption of the church had undermined the gospel of grace. And so the Reformation was rediscovering and re-unearthing all of this that had been covered up by, uh, by bad doctrinal teaching and moral corruption. They wanted to uncover that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We want to recover that. And all of this is found in Scripture alone. Saved by grace, on the basis of Christ alone. You see all of these here. Received through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, all with the scripture as the final authority. You can't buy grace, and you can't override the authority of the Bible with things that the reformers would agree with. So sola scriptura, as we'll talk about this morning in the first of this installment, was the doctrine that led to all of these other affirmations of the Reformation. Now, will you do a little historical dive with me? That's okay. We're going to take a little while to get to the, a little, little longer to get to the word this morning, uh, which is kind of odd since it's sola scriptura, but you'll see why uh, we're doing this as the basis of it. Let's give a little historical dive how, how we got here and why sola scriptura, only scripture alone, is so important. Now, there is more to this history. You can find this history in other places. Uh, you can go to, there's some wonderful websites that you can do an even deeper dive in that if you want some of those resources. Ask me. I can point you in this right direction. One of our classes right now, our Food for Thought Sunday School class, uh, they are currently walking through some of these historical characters of the Reformation, even here and now. So you can join that class. Uh, it's a ladies' class, by the way, if you're a woman, and be part of, of that class. So, so, so let me give you a little basis of how we got to where we are. The Greek New Testament was published by Erasmus in 1560. 1516. All right, the printing press had been invented at that time in the 1400s, and now Erasmus was able to publish the Greek 
New Testament. So now it was widely distributed, the Greek New Testament. Here's what Erasmus wrote in the preface to his Greek New Testament. Are you ready? You're going to see where this is going. Christ wishes, here's what Erasmus wrote, 1516, Greek New Testament, printing press, going all over the world. People now have access to the word of God, the New Testament at least. And here's what he writes in the introduction, in the preface at least, to his publication of the Greek New Testament. He says this, Christ wishes his mysteries to be published as widely as possible. I would wish even all women to read the gospel and the epistles of St. Paul. And I wish that they were translated into languages of all Christian people, that they might be read and known not merely by the Scotch and Irish or even by the Turks and uh, Saracens. I wish that the husbandman may sing parts of them at his plow, that the weaver may warble them at his shuttle, and the traveler may with their narrative beguile the weariness of the way." He wished that all people would know and have access to the word of God. In 1517, you may know this if you know some of your history. On October 31st, 1517, this is why you might see some called October 31st Reformation Day because this was the day that Martin Luther, another big name of the Reformation, nailed the 95 Thesis on the door to, uh, to the church uh, at a church in, in Wittenberg, Germany, where he wanted to have a discussion. He was a priest. I want to have a discussion about things that don't line up with the word of God. For example, in number 27 of these 95 theses, he says, it is man's doctrine that we are te- that the church is teaching that as money is thrown into the coffer, a soul from purgatory flings. And so he was saying that we are teaching man's doctrine, not the Bible's doctrine. And so Luther steps in, and he wasn't out to start a new denomination or church, but he wanted to reform the church to rightly define the word of truth. And here's what Luther said at his famous Diet of Worms in 1721 as he was asked to recant his teaching. Listen to this. You'll hear sola scriptura in this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me, he said, and amen. For Luther, the scriptures and the scriptures alone were the final arbiter of what we should believe. And so you're seeing as this reformation comes that people are saying it's the word of God that we must cling to. And the word of God is our final authority. Some years later, coming out of the reformation, we had a man named William Tyndale who gave his life to get the scriptures into common English. Have you heard the name of William Tyndale before? So he's coming right out of the Reformation, so coming out of Erasmus, then, then Luther comes a man of the name Tyndale. There's a publishing house named in his honor today, so you might see some of that on some of your Christian books. Before Tyndale, there were only handwritten manuscripts of the Bible in English. The, these manuscripts we owe to the work some hundred years earlier of John Wycliffe uh, from about 130 years earlier. 
And for a thousand years before that, the only translation of the Greek and Hebrew Bible was the Latin Vulgate, and few people could understand it, even if they had access to it. So again, they're driving at this, we must get the word of God in every person's hand so that they can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ according to his written word. And we will do anything to get a Bible in people's hands so that they can read it in their language so they might know the word of God. People gave their lives for this. They gave their lives away for it, and one was William Tyndale. Wycliffe had written these things down. He was later proclaimed a heretic, Wycliffe was, so much so that they, they ex- exhumed his body, his bones, burned them, and threw them in a river to, um, to, to, to show that their, their, their satisfaction in what he did in translating the Bible into common English. But Tyndale comes in, and they say of Tyndale that he was always singing one note, It was said of Tyndale as some men were trying to track him down because he was in hiding. They wanted him dead because he wanted to translate the Bible in English. One man wrote about him. I find him always singing one note. And that note was this. Will the king of England give his official endorsement to a vernacular Bible for all his English subjects? If not, Tyndale will not come. If so, Tyndale will give himself up to the king and never write another book. For people like Tyndale in 1536, his driving passion of his life was to see the Bible translated from Greek and Hebrew into the ordinary English language available for every person in England to read. When's the last time we picked up a copy of the English Bible and said, wow, someone gave their life for this. The reason I have this by my bedside on my shelf and at my office and, and the reason I, I preach from the English Bible because people gave their lives so that all people might hear the word of God and be transformed by it. Speaking of Tyndale, Tyndale speaking to a church scholar once said this, much like Erasmus said, He says, I will, Tyndale said this, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than church scholars. He wanted the common people to have the scripture. He was then formally condemned as a heretic and degraded from the priesthood. In October 6, he was tied to a stake, strangled, and burned for his work in translating the Bible into the English language. The application to this historical narrative. The very fact that you have an English copy of the Bible is something that we often take for granted. And I don't say that this morning to kind of degrade us, make us feel bad about ourselves for not taking it, maybe not appreciating what we have, but maybe to just reinvigorate your passion for the Word of God this morning. Because in the scriptures alone, it's plain that salvation is by grace alone. We're justified by faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And you could say that the reformers were trying to get back to the New Testament church. They were trying to get back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we'll look at here in a moment. They were trying to get to Acts chapter 2, where people were devoted to the apostles' teaching. But they were even trying to get back to the Old Testament people who were constantly told to remember the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this, because they would forget forget. Simple as that. We read the word, sing the word, pray the word. We're all about the word because it's a constant reminder of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so we want to be people of 
the word. People like Luther and Tyndale and Wycliffe and all of those wonderful saints that have gone before us. They wanted us to be in the word of God. Not that so we would remember them, but so that we would behold Christ in our own language. That we might see him and that we might know him. So that brings us to our first text. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just two big points this morning. That's one big point. I wanted to give you that historical narrative as we begin this series. Two points this morning. Scripture alone is our authority. We'll see that in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, we'll see Scripture alone is our power. What power will we trust? So we can ask it in two questions is, what authority will we trust? That was the question of the Reformation. What authority will you trust? The doctrine of man or the teachings of Scripture? That's what we're looking at even in the Reformation as is celebrated during the month of October because of what Luther did on October 31st, 1517. Many people call this Reformation Month, however you want to call it. What power will you trust? Look at 2 Timothy. Spend a few minutes looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read it again and then make some comments about it. So this is Paul writing to young Timothy. This year, these are Paul's last words. So he's, he's about to be done. They're about to kill him. Um, he's passing the baton at this point to Timothy. So as we pass, think back one generation to the next, what I talked about in the introduction. How's he gonna, what's going to pass from one generation to the next? What's going to be his authority? What's going to be his power? What's going to be our authority and power as the gospel goes from one generation to the next? Verse 14, 2 Timothy 3. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So understand the context of this again, what he's asking Timothy. How will you make it? Generations are going to be corrupt. Wickedness will come in. It's going to be increasingly difficult for you, Timothy, to live faithfully in a crooked world. Is that a bit of us today? It's going to be hard to live for Christ in a broken world. So how will you go about? What will your authority be? What will you listen to? What will you base your life upon? And Paul doesn't say, try some of a, a new teaching. Try to, try to come up with some, some, some creative way. Continue, Timothy. That which you were told in childhood, the simple gospel truths of the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Those simple truths, Timothy, that were taught by your mother and grandmother, those simple things, Timothy, continue in those. That's the way forward. Not manipulating, not coming up with some sort of man-made doctrine, no Believe what you have been taught, for that is the very word of God. There's no need for novel teaching. There's no other need for another authority. You have been taught by the, you have been taught this, Timothy, and don't let the gospel that moves from one generation to the next never stop appreciating, never take for granted what you have been taught. 
Don't let it go. Continue in that. From one generation to the next, continue. Why do we continue in these things, in these sacred writings, identifying them as, this is scripture, these are sacred, these are different. Talking about the Old Testament at this point. So even the Old Testament, listen to what it says in verse 15, which are able. So why is the Bible our ultimate authority? Why do we long for it to be up and need it to be our authority? Because it is able alone to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, continue in what you've learned from one generation to the next because this alone is able to point you to Christ and make you wise unto salvation. This is exactly what you need. Scripture is able and is designed and is given and breathed out by God in order to point you to Christ. If you want to behold Christ, behold him in his word. Continue in what you've learned. Continue to be pointed to Jesus. This is your authority. Christ is your king. This will point you to your king. And by the way, Timothy, all scripture, and by the way, this is a side note. I'm not going to explain all this here, but even as Paul, as he's writing, is understanding that he is writing scripture, that it's different than other writings, that what he's writing is part of those sacred writings. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. This is our authority. So continue in what we've learned. It's, it all points us to Christ and it is breathed out by God. This is God's very word, just as He spoke in the beginning and created out of nothing all of creation. He speaks and reveals Himself to us. The Spirit worked through biblical writers to pin God's word entirely and exactly as He intended. Just as God spoke the universe into existence, so also he breathed out his word in scripture. In fact, a better word than inspiration might be expiration, one writer says, because God breathed out his holy word. What a gift we have in the Bible. And those early reformers wanted to get the word of God in the people's hands so that they could hear the very breathed out word of God. What a gift we have. Each word breathed out by God. Peter describes it like this. He says, first of all, you should know this. This is Second Peter uh, chapter 1. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is God-breathed and pr- Scripture is profitable for all sorts of good things. It's profitable for all of life and godliness. It will teach you. It will reprove you. It will correct you for training in righteousness. So how can I know how I'm supposed to live? What's the authority in my life? How do I know to live my life? Well, the Word of God tells you. So just go ahead and think of application right here. What What has the final authority in your life? What are you trusting as the final authority in your life? And so he goes on to say in chapter 4, preach this word. Be all about this word in season and out of season. Keep preaching this word so that people might behold Christ. So scripture alone is our authority. It's It's our final authority. It's our only authority and good authority you know this, brings peace, brings shalom. Think of this by way of application. Have you ever tried to take control of your own life? And how'd that work out for you? 
The scripture tells us how life works, how you work, and what you need. So we lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. All this that was brought about, grace alone through faith alone, all was under the conviction that the word of God is our very life. It started with a movement of the word of God. How will revival and reformation come today? Continued commitment to the authority of the word of God. When the word of God forms us and makes us, we will be changed and we will be like Christ as we behold him in his word. So think of how, let's think of more ways of application, then we'll get on to point number two in Hebrews chapter four. What authority is in your life? Think about the authority of of a local church. Think about when you come in on a Sunday morning or go to a Sunday school class, what do you prioritize in corporate worship? Do you prioritize, I want to hear from the Lord, is scripture being read? Are truths about scripture being sung? Is the pastor preaching from the Bible? Think about how you evaluate a sermon. Think about how you evaluate a small group. Think about how you evaluate a Sunday school group. What is your standard? Think about the joy that sola scriptura will bring that when you come to a small group. Now, I realize this, that sometimes it's strange for us, even in our own discipleship groups, uh, what's, your, um, what, what's your curriculum? Well, it's the Bible. We go through the Bible together. That's it? And this is where we behold Christ. And it's almost become strange to us to think that only the Word of God. But it'll bring great joy to you when you come to Sunday school and say, man, that teacher taught me the Word of God. It'll bring great joy to you when you come to corporate worship. We sing truths about God. We prayed the Scripture together. We read the Scripture together. And the Scripture was preached. Praise God. Joy fills my soul. For this is the final authority This is the word of God, the God-breathed scriptures. This book has authority. And number two, this book has power. Hebrews chapter four. We won't spend as long in Hebrews chapter four, but let's go ahead and take a look. Hebrews chapter four, verses 11 through 13. So this is our authority, and this is our power. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The people of Israel did not listen to the word of God. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. Of joints and marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To whom we must get give account. And so two things we're seeing this morning, First Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3, Scripture is our authority because it is God's word. And number two, Scripture alone is alive and active. Scripture is our power. Now, when the Bible says that Scripture is alive and active, we're not talking about like a liberal view of the Constitution. That somehow it's a living document that it's often used to to say that we must make it relevant and must conform to its time. And somehow we have to help scripture conform to its time. That's not what this is saying. Scripture does not change. The word of God does not change. The word of God will not be added to. The word of God will not be manipulated to meet cultural lenses. The word of God stands. It is our authority as it is written as it is. 
And so we're not saying the word of God is living and active and can be manipulated and made to say what you want it to say, to conform to modern culture. It's saying that the scripture is alive and active, it is powerful, and it reads you. More than we read scripture, scripture reads you. Do you see what it says there? For the word of God is living and active. It's sharp than any two-edged sword. It pierces us. It opens us up. It exposes us. It discerns us. And we give account to God based upon his word. Scripture reads us. This is why when we meet together and why we are in the scripture so much so that we won't be like the wandering people of Israel, that's the context here. The writer of Hebrews is saying the wanderer people of Israel, they forgot the word of God. They stopped listening to God. And as a result, they did not enter the rest of the promised land. He's saying, don't let it be true for you. The word of God is living and active. Let it read you. Let it expose you. Let it open you. Let it discern you. Let it pierce you. Let it judge you. But rejoice because you have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. So hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to that confession. And by that, you will enter rest. So what's at stake here is how will we enter the rest of Christ? We'll cling to his word. How will a church be powerful? By his word. We will not follow the example of Israel in the Old Testament. The Bible is our guide to trusting God, finding full satisfaction in him. And God has revealed himself to us. And so we will get our eyes on him by getting our eyes into the word. So scripture is our authority. Scripture is our power. And historically, people have given their lives so that the scripture might be clear and plain to us in our common language. What joy it is to be part of a people that say sola scriptura. It's only scripture and scripture alone. So in conclusion, let's remember this. God wants us to know him. And he has made himself known. God wants us to know him and he has made himself known. There is a long line of believers who wanted you to know Christ. Because they knew that God had made himself known, so they wanted you to know Christ, so they gave their lives so that you might know Christ in his written word, the only way to truly know Christ. There's a long line of believers who knew that when sin entered into the human race, the need for special revelation became more acute. Our relationship with God was broken and the problems of sin and depravity were now reality. And we needed to know if God would graciously redeem us and how he redeemed us. And God wrote a book to tell us exactly who he is and exactly what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. God wants us to know him. God wants us to submit to the proper authority so that we might have life. God wants us to have the power of the gospel and to be a powerful people who trust in, in the word of God. Often fear today that many mantras of Christians in the local church is not sola scriptura, but sola pragmatica. Whatever works is what we believe. Whatever works will be our power. Whatever gets people, whatever people want to hear, we'll tell them. 
But people gave their lives. It's not sola pragmatica. It is sola scriptura. We do what the word of God tells us to do, and we trust it. We do it as a church. We do it as a Christian. So if you're a Christian this morning, and there's something in the word of God that convicts you, that exposes you, that pierces you, you have to ask yourselves the question that so many people throughout history wanted to get in front of you. This is what the word of God says. This is the way of life. In fact, when the people of God were entering to the promised land, this has long become one of my favorite scriptures about scripture. This is how my seminary professor, Dr. John Currid, opened my very first seminary class ever. So this is the first thing I ever heard stepping into a seminary classroom. As the people of God are about to enter into the promised land, enter into a place of rest, Moses writes to the people about the word of God as it was completed up to that point at the time. For it is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. And by this word you shall live. What does your life say? What is our church? We want to ask those questions constantly. Is this word our very life? And by it we shall live. Do we trust that authority? Are you your own authority? Is culture your authority? What is your authority? Is pragmatic thinking your authority? We must be people of the book. It must be our authority. And a long line of believers wanted to get this in front of us so that we would know. Luther said, I did nothing. The word of God did everything. Do we believe it? Do we trust it? Is it our authority? Is it our power? For it is no empty word for you, but it is your very life, and by it you shall live. Let's pray.